I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a delicious selection of our reporting and analysis from the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on our menu, Mexico's anti-corruption tour bus. Japan's ultra-nationalist kindergarten and the medicinal benefits of dragon blood. But first, France's next revolution was our cover line this week. France hasn't had a revolution in many years and even serious reform has been off the cards for a while. But this year's election looks set to change that and it'll have serious consequences far beyond the country's borders, as our cover leader argued. This year's presidential election the most exciting in living memory, promises an upheaval. French voters may face a choice between two insurgent candidates, Marine Le Pen, the charismatic leader of the National Front, and Emmanuel Macron, the upstart leader of a liberal movement, En Marche, On the Move, which he founded only last year. These two frontrunners symbolise a departure from the traditional political dichotomy. They are the clearest example yet of a global trend that the old divide between left and right is growing less important than a new one between open and closed. Their success is in part underpinned by anguish at the state of the country. One poll last year found that French people are the most pessimistic on earth, with 81% grumbling that the world is getting worse and only 3% saying that it is getting better. Much of that gloom is economic. People may be gloomy now, but the outlook could be far bleaker. A victory for Mr Macron would be evidence that liberalism still appeals to Europeans. A victory for Ms Le Pen would make France poorer, more insular and nastier. And the latter could destabilise decades of continental bonding. If she pulls France out of the euro, it would trigger a financial crisis and doom a union that, for all its flaws has promoted peace and prosperity in Europe for six decades. Vladimir Putin would love that. You can read the rest of that leader, as well as a detailed special report on a fractured France, in this week's issue. So the country has a monumental decision as to which political path it will take. But over in Japan, there's one small troop with deep-rooted ideals right from the offing. As an article in our Asia section reported, an ultra-nationalist kindergarten is embarrassing the country's prime minister. Every morning, the children of Tsukamoto Kindergarten stomp their tiny feet in time to military anthems, bow to pictures of the emperor and vow courageously to offer themselves to defend the state. At school functions, the three-, four-, and five-year-olds exhort watching parents to protect Japan from foreign threats. This sort of schooling was once commonplace across Japan. But state schools toned down the nationalism in the aftermath of the Second World War. Until recently, few Japanese realised that any private schools were still peddling such jingoism. They were even more surprised to learn that the government seems to have been encouraging them. And the link from these tiny toddlers appears to go straight to the top. 
Last year, Moritomo Gakwen, the firm that runs the kindergarten, bought a plot of public land in the city of Osaka at a knockdown price, perhaps 14% of its value. It began building a primary school to propagate the same ultra-nationalist ideas. It invoked the name of Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister, when soliciting donations. Mr Abe denies any involvement in the land sale and says he will step down if anyone can prove otherwise. The patter of tiny problems there, and not just in Japan. Mexico's government is at risk of being shown up by a new public approach to tackling corruption. As we detailed in an article in our Americas section, there's a tourist bus in town destined for all sorts of sleazy sights. The Estela de Luz, steely of light, is not one of Mexico's city's glories. The 104-metre, or 341-foot, tower, built from panels of quartz, was supposed to celebrate the bicentennial of Mexico's independence from Spain in 2010. But it was inaugurated in 2012, 16 months later than planned, and cost 1.3 billion pesos, that's $100 million, to build, more than treble its original budget. And in the end, this was less of a shining star and more of a sullied spectacle. The federal government paid the bill. Eight former officials involved in the tower's construction were arrested after its completion. But for all the negative publicity, the tower is attracting new visitors all the time. The delay and cost overruns earned the tower a place on the Corrupt Tour, a new twice-a-week bus tour that shows off the capital's monuments to graft, fraud and mismanagement. They include the Balderas metro station in the city's centre. A recorded commentary tells the saga of the metro system's Line 12. Its stations were so shoddily built that half of them had to close temporarily. But at least most of the stops have a good yarn behind them. The stop outside the Interior Ministry is an occasion to talk about impunity. The Ministry is responsible for the maximum security prison from which Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, a drug kingpin, escaped in 2015, down a tunnel dug from the shower in his cell. Tunnelling over now to our Money Talks podcast, where we explored the growing list of threats facing the European Union, from mass migration to Brexit to the resurgence of Eurosceptic parties across the continent. But amid the negativity, Eurogroup President Jerome Dijsselbloem struck a far more sanguine note. Here he is responding to a question, suggesting financial reforms were moving far too slowly. Things are moving a lot faster than some of the critics are saying, and we're economically heading in the right direction. Our banks are in a better shape, even the Italian banks are being cleaned out at the moment. Uh, the economy is in a much better shape. Investment is picking up. Unemployment is going down. And if you need a little more of that euro positivity, why not listen to the rest of our Money Talk show? On to our business section now, though, where an article reported on the slightly too buoyant industry of shipping. It's beset by overcapacity. So why has there been so little scrapping? Since the financial crisis after which trade growth slowed, the Baltic Dry Index, a measure of bulk freight rates, has fallen by 93%. Prices for transporting containers have plunged by the same amount on some routes. 
In 2008, it cost $2,000 to send a 20-foot box from China to Brazil. Now it costs $50. Indeed, the waters are running red and the industry is drowning. Hanjin Shipping of South Korea, the world's seventh largest line, went bust last August. And even Mask Line, which has the lowest costs in the industry, lost $367 million in 2016. It seems ship owners are just too reluctant to send their favourite boats to the scrap heap. Last year, firms scrapped 194 ships, accounting for 3% of global tonnage, a record high. But new ships will add 8% more capacity this year. The net increase is over twice the level of forecast growth in demand. Full steam ahead them, if the captains don't go down with their ships. Find our analysis in this week's issue. Our science and technology podcast, Babbage, explored a fantastical tale of resistance this week. Dragon's blood has long been considered a remedy for many ailments, well, in mythology at least. But new research into Komodo dragons suggests that the yarn spinners of old might well have been onto something. Science correspondent Matt Kaplan explained. They took the parent strains of bacteria that are often associated with resistant infections. These are the kinds of bugs that are living in hospitals that infect people that no antibiotics can take down. And what they found was that with a couple of these strains, the researchers were able to see that the antimicrobial peptides that were in the dragon blood were very effective at holding these bacterial strains at bay. So folk tales may hover between fiction and reality, but our language columnist asked why some words live or die. Writing in the pages of our books and art section, Johnson offered some sage advice as to how to stop a few of them from keeling over and when to let some of them go. Biologists reckon that most species that have ever existed are extinct. That is true of words too. Of the Oxford English Dictionary's 231,000 entries, at least a fifth are obsolete. They range from R, that's spelt double A, a stream or waterway, try that in Scrabble, to zymome, that constituent of gluten which is insoluble in alcohol. Well, at least he didn't tergisivate. And the English certainly have an unusually rich vocabulary. In part because first they were conquered by the Vikings and Norman French, and then they took their turn conquering large swathes of the earth in Asia, North America and Africa. Thousands of new words entered the standard language as a result. So what makes a word stick while others fade? The smaller and more local a word, the more danger it faces of dying out. And technology may be helping us to wean ourselves off superfluities too. One cause is the death of perfect synonyms in an era of mass communications. The words radiogram and runchenogram, both meaning the same thing, were eventually edged out by X-ray the world having no need for three labels for the same thing. Yes, I should think one's quite enough there, but this hypothesis is being contested, as the column explained. What people call their grandparents, for example, Gramps and Gram or Mimor and Papor, is more immune to the steamroller of national norms. In fact, these words are especially stubborn precisely because they give people an emotional connection to where they come from. Some words inevitably disappear, but our columnists saw no sadness in that. The OED also includes a host of terms from the inkhorn period of English word coinage, when writers readily made up new words from Greek and Latin roots. These include such forgettables as sepeditate, meaning subdued or overcome. Good riddance to them. 
And it's time for us to fade away too, as that's the end of this week's tasting menu. Don't forget you can read all of our articles mentioned in this week's issue and find our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.